This is the Life Valve session, 2016, talk number three. People who are, especially those just beginning uh, practice, often think that the spiritual practices, I'm going to be mindful, I'm going to pay attention to my hands and my feet and my breath or my ears or whatever, and by paying attention to that, something miraculous will happen because I'll be in the present moment and everything will be at ease. It is true that when we have that kind of mindfulness and we, we are in the present moment, things definitely go better. Our ordinary view of reality is we're like pinball, pinballs in a pinball machine. You know, you kind of get that, pull that plunger back and it shoots the ball out and it bounces around between all the, the buildings and the cars and the people and trying to score a few points and trying to, you know, keep it going as long as he possibly can until finally it dies. So the ordinary view of things, that we are this gross matter, and if I just am kind of one with this gross body, um, you know, that's how few people get beyond that. That is a dog-eat-dog world. That is a world of, of existential angst. But as we do zazen, as we look more and more carefully into the nature of our own being, the nature of our own mind, the nature of our own awareness, other things are also there simultaneously. We can begin to see energy, the energy moving through the body. We can begin to see emotional states, the energetic field of other people. Every mature adult can walk into a room and you give a flavor of, is this harmonious or is it angry? Is this person I'm meeting right here, are they going to harm me or are they okay? It would be good to feel those emotional states and more and more subtly. And if we keep looking and practicing exactly the same way that you are doing right now, we keep looking directly into the mindful investigation of your particular practice, we actually begin to see the impermanence and emptiness of things. And if we continue looking, we can begin to see the oneness of things. The oneness of things where it's like a, a, a room like this filled with mirrors. Each mirror reflects all the other mirrors. Each mirror contains all the other mirrors' reflections. And if we keep looking, we actually begin to see the co-arising of wisdom and function, how the universe lives through us, how we are the Buddha of this time. All these states of mind, of course, are possible as we look carefully and investigate carefully what's right in front of us. Now, as we are practicing, this is day two or three, whatever it is, as we are practicing here, everyone experiences waves of thought and emotion. And just like in the ocean, there are continual waves. A wave of this thought comes through, and that's followed by that thought, and followed by that, and we're happy, and we're sad, and we're easy and our legs hurt and our back hurts and everything, we forget it all and we go walking, you know, all that stuff. And that just happens day and night, summer, winter, all the time. 
Just like in the ocean, the waves appear out of nowhere, out of the body of the ocean, have a certain force and then disappear into the sand. And our thoughts and moods, the states that we go through, if we're looking at them carefully, we begin to see them as effervescent. They appear, they disappear. If we're not looking at them, they are so real. You know, they are so concrete. They are so important. But when we actually look carefully at all these states of mind and these moods that we go through, sadness goes through, happiness goes through, excitement goes through, boredom goes through, easy times go through, hard times go through, joy goes through, grief goes through. These waves just keep coming and going by themselves. It's the way things are. However, we have the ability to fixate on something, try to grab a hold of it. And the way we try to grab a hold of it is we make up a story, a conclusion. Oh, yes, I feel this particular feeling and have this particular thought, and therefore it means that I'm a horrible, miserable failure. I have this particular feeling and I have this particular thought, and therefore it means I am an enlightened Buddha. And we grab a hold and say, oh, yes, this is how I am. This is the way things are. If we are looking carefully and not making up these kind of conclusions and stories, every wave passes through. Every wave just keeps changing. When we don't see them all as waves, as things that are just constantly going through, and sometimes the waves are you know, microseconds, and sometimes the waves take years. It just depends on our particular karma. Always, moment to moment, it's very, very quick. But the, the macro wave can seem like a lot longer. When we don't see it in that way, we see something we don't like. We see a, a state of sadness or boredom or grief or pain or indifference. And we immediately say, oh, I don't like this. I want the opposite. I want the opposite. I want to be enthusiastic. I want to be excited. I want to have joy. I want to have pleasure. I want to be inspired. I want to be at ease. And everybody can go on the internet and look at YouTube, and I guarantee there is an Indian guru out there who smiles all the time. I guarantee it. There's got to be somebody out there who's just smiling all the time, and that is their dharma. That if you do what I tell you to do, you will too will smile all the time. You will be happy, 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 just like I am, filled with bliss. I hope that's the case. However, I know that that too is a wave. That'd be a wave of particularly nice DNA for a while. If we associate these good states with some person or some place or something, we think, oh, I go to the monastery and I feel so good. Or, oh, I'm with that person, I feel so good that we glom onto them, so we marry them. As soon as we move in, classic thing that happens is people go to Hawaii, they feel so relaxed, it's so beautiful, the smells are so lovely. It's warm, it's congenial, it just feels like ah, heaven on earth. They move to Hawaii, and about 
two years later, they're bored out of their minds. Because what was so delightful and attractive and wonderful, and it truly it was delightful, attractive and wonderful, was simply a wave of experience that flowed through them. If we don't see these things as waves, we might decide that going to the movies, or dancing, or taking psychedelics, or writing the great American novel, or becoming famous and becoming famous, or being an actor or an actress, we might decide there's something, something, that if we just grab a hold of the thing, just get the thing, then all the things that we don't like in us, we won't have to experience anymore. We'll be able to, to experience the, the pleasure that we associate with the thing. That the person, place, or thing gives us a feeling that we crave. But all states of mind are just waves. All states of mind are waves. All circumstances are simply waves. There are people who have very good karma, and they have a very good wave of what we would regard as pleasant, successful. There are people who have very difficult karma, and they have a wave of what we would regard as very difficult, difficult, difficult. Everybody has these waves. And so the foundation here in practice, for in terms of this, is as we are sitting, looking, feeling with the experience of our whole being, the nature of breath, of life, of whatever your particular practice is, waves are going to pass through. The waves are going to pass through. The traditional Buddhist way is that when we don't have something, we're unhappy because we don't have it and we're grasping for it. After we've gotten something that we like, it disappears because it's a wave, and then we're unhappy because we don't have it anymore. And so with this particular thing, we have little blips of pleasure and happiness, and mostly it's unhappiness. I don't have what I want. I've lost what I had. When that happens, if we've glommed on to something or somebody, and we marry somebody, and we have an ecstatic time together, and we're so happy and so one with it, about three years into the relationship, it all changes. Well, we say, oh, that's not any good anymore. Get somebody new. We do a job for a while, and then it changes. Satisfying, unsatisfying. And we dump it. We say, oh, I did a different career. We drop our hobbies. We change our religion or our city or our climate. From too hot in the south to too cold in the north. This is the way that the mind that does not see these things as waves, as unsubstantial waves, as things moving through, just creates a cycle of ongoing suffering and difficulty. Every parent knows what this is like. You, know, you have the excitement of pregnancy and the excitement of birth and the excitement of a new being, and that's followed by days and nights of challenge, interrupted sleep and constant demands and crying. But if you make it through that, and that's followed by some very lovely times, of, which is followed by terrible twos, which is followed by even more lovely times of five, six, seven, eight, nine, which is followed by reactive, resistant teenagers, which may be followed by a mature relationship with an adult person, 
as we practice, we begin to recognize, oh, this is either a crest or a trough of the wave. If it's a trough, I breathe and bear with it and stay with it, stay with it, stay with it, knowing that it's temporary, knowing that it's passing through. If it's a crest, I can enjoy it, I can appreciate it, I can make use of it, but I also don't get too fixated by it. Wave after wave of experience. It's hard to stay with this. Hard to stay with this. Hard to stay with ourselves. Even though we may know with our rational mind these things, even though we know in our heart these truths, somehow the habitual mind just keeps grabbing. You know, a little bored, I want something else. That'll be more exciting, more interesting. So, what do we do? First off, we cultivate a stable mind like we've been cultivating. We see things as they are. See that they are all waves. And then, as I was mentioning yesterday, we have to actually look at our fixed beliefs about ourselves and the world. The firmly held beliefs that we have. And watch those beliefs pop up and disappear. They morph. We don't hold them in our mind all the time when we actually begin to see that the fixed beliefs, the fixed ideas I have about myself are only a temporary constellation of karmic factors that will change and go through, we actually see as we're not so caught by our own distress, failure, success. So we actually, it's very important that we see begin to notice our fixed views. And our fixed views, the sign that I mentioned yesterday is friction. The more friction we have, the more it says, oh, there's a fixed view here somewhere. Friction between myself, friction with others. And then as we let go of that, those fixed views, the next stage, of course, is we make a vow, we make a promise, we make a commitment, we grow, support, sustain something. With your zazen, there's two aspects to it. There's kind of an internal and an external aspect. They're just arbitrarily separating them right now. Internally, there is a place in us, there's an experience in us, there's an awareness in us that is clear, present, spacious, lucid, not composed of parts, spontaneously arising. As I mentioned before, against the background of movement, there is stillness. We notice movement because there's something still, and that which is still and bright and clear, always there, regardless of what is moving in front of it. So whether we're practicing, whenever we're practicing, whether we're doing whole body breathing or focusing on some particular thing, 
We're paying attention to the breath, we're stepping, how we're walking. The particular activity is constantly morphing, but that which is aware is always there, always bright. Now, if you're working on Mu and if you were doing that, the essence of Mu is awareness and the object's awareness are not two things. The seer and the seen are not two things. There's only Mu, which is not a thing. And there's not a thing because there's no perspective to have on anything. You're not standing outside of anything looking at it. That it's that's a different practice that we're not emphasizing this issue. So we begin to see everything is constant flux. Because we know the clear, stable mind that is aware. Easy to say. This is how we begin to approach the, the truth of what the Buddhists call impermanence, emptiness, shunyata. That everything that we imagine is there, can, we can look into it and see that it's either composed of parts, we have a watch, and in a way it's very real and hard, but it can be taken apart, and so there's lots of parts and parts and parts and parts and parts. We find that there's lots of space. That's one way of looking at emptiness. The other way of looking at emptiness is, you know, the place this watch is in the universe is just constantly changing and morphing. It's over here, and it's over there, and it's over there. It's unfolded, and it's folded. It's constantly morphing, that there actually is no particular thing which is stable. The hands move, the gears move, will fall apart. The battery will at some point stop, it will rust out. So seeing the truth of flux, seeing the truth of this constant flux, means we can relax. You're sitting, you're doing zazen, you're focusing what you're focusing on, you can relax. Just relax, because it's all changing. And your job is to see it all is changing. We feel the breath changing, we feel our steps changing, we feel our hands changing, we hear the sound, there's nothing but change. Everything flows through our life. Obstacles, problems, suffering, good times, easy, hard, plays, blame, pressure, pain, loss, gain, all flows through our life. We are never stuck. We are never stuck. We are never trapped. Because nothing is fixed. Because reality just keeps flowing. So you can relax. You don't have to worry about being trapped. You don't have to worry about being you know, caught. The nature of life is always flowing, flowing, flowing. One side of the truth. Now, just as a little addendum, we feel our hands in our hands. We feel our breath in our breath. We feel our feet in our feet. We feel the experience of flowing in the experience of flowing. It's not as though there's some witness back here that is doing the watching and doing the practicing. It's important to start that way sometimes with practice. I'm going to concentrate very carefully. 
but as we practice a little bit more, we have to actually be aware of this flux in, inside, inside the experience of things. We feel our feet from within our feet. We feel our breath from within our breath. We feel our hands from within our hands. We feel our body from within our body. And it's all changing in flux. Now, one side of the truth is it all disappears. Something arises and it disappears. It's the way it is. All those circumstances, all those people that we've known, all that food that we've eaten, you know, everything just disappears. But it also, simultaneously, everything arises. So the classic example is like a water flowing over a waterfall. Things are, the water is disappearing over the fall, constantly disappearing, constantly disappearing. And as fast as it disappears, more water is coming. And so the waterfall appears stable, but it's filled with constant arising of new water falling over and old water, constant arising and falling simultaneously. So you don't have to worry about the word emptiness. This sense I'm using it now, it just means no fixed form. Because we are filled to the brim. And so that's part of our zazen. Our zazen is paying attention and seeing that no matter how things change, there's all, we're always, our awareness is always filled to the brim. And we may, you know, lose a watch or somebody may walk out the door, but our awareness is always filled to the brim. Every thought is followed by another thought. Every breath is followed by another breath. Every wave of emotion arises, exists, and disappears. And teachers, and people, and problems, and successes, and failures. Now, part of what we're doing with Zazen, and part we're doing at Sashin, is we're learning to again make the shift from grabbing a hold of all the states and the people and the things that we like, grabbing a hold, thinking if I just get the right whatever, whoever, I'll be a happy person. Letting go of that particular fantasy and taking the step to awareness itself. That awareness always stable, always present. Now if that's true, everything is constantly disappearing, everything is in flux, Nothing is stable. Things are, new things are constantly appearing and arising. Well, what is important? What is, what's the, how do I make sense of my life if it's just flux? And the important part is that as the fifth of the five stages that are five aspects that I mentioned, is the universe lives through us. And so given the ephemeral nature of things, we still want to eat. We still decide to go to the bathroom. We still get dressed. We still make decision after decision after decision after decision. So that doesn't seem to be impaired at all by the flux of things. We still like to eat no matter whether the meal disappears or not. We'll still raise children even though they 
turn the heels on us and disappear. So what is important then? There are two elements of what's important. Things that will pull this package together in a way. Give meaning to this endless flux. And that reflects the truth that the universe lives through each of us. First are the vows of our individual self. Just as individually we all eat, we know things that we like to eat, things we don't like to eat, we also have the ability to make individual vows about things that are important for us to do and not do. And secondly, the vows that come out of seeing that we are not separate, that our life is all life. So when we're making people, we talk about vows in an ordinary way, go to an ordinary group, we say, you know, it's important to make vows, and people take their ordinary mind, and basically they say, I want to vow to get what I want to get, to create what I want to create, to solidify what I want to solidify. But when we're talking in a sophisticated group like this, and we actually can see the impermanence and the fluidity of all things, because in our zazen, right here, right now, we're watching that. And as we are seeing and looking directly at our fixed views and seeing that they too can be, they too are fluid if we're not hanging on to them. They're fluid if we are hanging on to them, but it's a lot easier if you see them as empty. If we are practitioners who see we cannot fail, we cannot fail because life is endlessly flowing. And so we have the ability to make the vows that will not fail. We have the ability to make the vows that are the direct expression of the universe living through me, through each of us. That is a different level of vow that I'm going to make things the way I think they should be made. One of the traps, of course, that every culture has is, is that the majority of the culture is very involved with the, the first order of, of view, the pinball view, the I, me, and my view, that I am somehow separate from the government, I'm somehow separate from the institutions, I'm somehow separate from all those things that I don't like, I'm somehow separate from our nation is separate from all the other nations. And when we have that core belief that I am separate and special and I've got to do something that I've got to do, and we don't realize that our life is the life of all the, the world, the environment, the institutions, the people that grew us, then we, in a way, cut ourselves off. We say, ah, none of that's important. that can take care of itself. You know, my responsibility is 
what I want to do. My responsibility is fulfilling myself. And I think that's the beginning of the whole environmental crisis that we're in, or the whole crisis in the world. And, you know, it seems like that's changing with what I'm hearing about the environmental movement, that people are really saying our life and the Earth's life are inseparable. The Earth is unhealthy, we're unhealthy. But it's also true the other way. We're unhealthy, the Earth is unhealthy. The deeper truth is we and the Earth arise simultaneously from the same mind. The Earth's life exists because of my life. So when we're talking about vows from a very realistic perspective and not a fantasy perspective, we have to know ourselves. And the only way to actually know ourselves is to interact. They say There's a saying in the tradition that a snake really knows it's curvy when it tries to go through a straight bamboo pole. That we understand ourselves by the way we interact, by the responsibilities that we take up, by the people we try to learn to adapt with, and learn to meet with, learn to communicate with. It is that engagement is how we learn about ourselves. There is no self in there. You can't find one. You look and look and look. And all you got is a bunch of random thoughts. You, know? you look and look and look, and all you got is a few waves of emotion. But who is the one who has the emotion? Who is the one who owns those thoughts? You look and look and look. You can't find somebody. Classic foundational Buddhist exercise, and you can all do it. Who am I? And you look and look and look, and you think, well, am I my ears? Well, sort of. Am I my nose? Well, sort of. Who's the owner of my nose? You know? Who's the owner of my ears? Who's the my? that the my refers to. We can't find anything. It's empty. Nobody, of course, says that you, you don't exist, but we can't find something. So knowing ourselves, the only way to actually know ourselves is by our engagement. We become engaged with gardening, and we suddenly learn about our strengths. We learn about our hands. We learn about our capacity. Become engaged in snow shoveling, and we learn about our body. We become engaged in taking on some project, and we learn, we learn, we learn. We do not learn without engagement. This particular session is a kind of engagement. It's a kind of deep engagement that, because we are clearly engaged with this practice, with ourselves, there's learning that comes out of it. There's lots of kinds of learning. Secondly, after really beginning to understand ourselves, to some degree, it's an endless lifelong process, of course. Secondly, we have to really, really, really see the transiency of all things, the endless creativity of life. Two things are the same. Again, the third part of making vow is we have to have either an intellectual, but hopefully a more direct experience that myself and my environment are not two things. That myself and the institutions that I frequent are not two things. That myself and the food that I eat are not two things. That myself 
and my partner are not two things. That myself and everything I see, the sun and the moon and the stars, are not two things. We have to have that direct experience. The way we have that direct experience is by using awareness with Zazen, looking intimately, intimately, holding our gaze very, very intimately, consistently, and looking, 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 feeling, 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 sensing, 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 aware, aware, aware. Because it's not something that we have to create, not something we have to figure out, not something that we have to have some great experience for. It is the very nature of all things. It is the very nature. And so all we're doing is looking at the true nature of things. And of course, to see the true nature of things, we have to see through our fixed ideas. Of course, they too are part of it. So then, we look with not a self-centered view, Look, I said, where's the need? What can I grow? Who needs my skills? What can I offer? Somehow, when we always think about vow, we think, oh, there's some, some deep thing inside of there, and if I just get down to it, some vow will pop out and emerge, and then I will be very happy and satisfied, and I'll be able to make a productive thing of my life, and then everybody will praise me for being such a great bodhisattva. Just more of, you know, just a, a spiritual version of ordinary mind. We in the world are not two things. So what's the need? Where am I particularly called with my particular skills and insight? Where's the need? And all the time, you know, people are saying, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, and they say, well, you know, every old age home needs somebody to go visit them. Every, you know, Meals on Wheels always needs people to help. There's always hospitals like volunteers of one sort or another. There's volunteers for Habitat for Humanity. There's all sorts of, the need is out there constantly, constantly. There's need everywhere we look. Yeah, no, it's not right for me. No, it's not what I want to do. No, no, no. The need is endless. We hesitate to commit to what we're being called to. Our world is calling for our presence. It's calling for our presence. And it doesn't necessarily have to agree with my small view of myself. It's calling for our presence. We have a mistaken view that my real life is some misplaced experience inside. As I say, that sense of I is unexamined. Healthy parents don't hesitate to raise children because they're going to grow up and leave, as I said. Some people have a, an internal resonance with the Dharma, that the world life situation meet something in them, and the two things come forth. Some people have a resonance with plants and animals and bees. That plants and animals and bees and something in them resonates and something comes forth. Some people have a resonance with families and children. Some people have a resonance with banking and accounting. This 
kind of vow? What are we going to grow? What are we going to put ourselves into? Is a vow where the universe is living through us. And in a way, the need at the outside is easier to see than what's here. This job is to respond. When we think of things as a personal drive, I have a personal drive to do this and change. You know, that's very wonderful, very great. If that personal drive is not in harmony with the need, then it's just endless frustration. Which is, you know, one way of learning about ourselves. You know, can't fail. Because the deep vows, the vows that are ongoing, the vows that the universe has that living through us are not the vows that are opposed or defeated by adverse circumstances. It's simply a vow that meets circumstances and continues going. It's a vow that meets circumstances and adapts. It's a vow that meets circumstances and responds. There is only one true life in the universe. Only one true life in the whole universe. And that is yours. Right where we sit. So what's important? Well, can't be told from the outside. It is, that is, somebody else can't say, you know, this is it. It can only be seen by our awareness, by our really opening our eyes and opening our hearts and looking at the world and seeing what's there and looking inside and seeing what's there. <clears throat> and then those two come together in a vow. Now, people get scared with the word vow. And so, you know, we don't have to be quite so, so um, fussy as the one I just talked about. But you just think, well, what's, the, what's some deep value you hold in your life? Deep value. Deep intention. Something that's precious to you. And you simply formulate a vow that says, I want to grow, share, help, cultivate support with this particular energy, strength, insight that I have. The world is calling for us to be alive and present in our particular unique way. It's not calling for us to inhabit a particular state. There is no state happy, sad, mad, glad, whatever you think. There is no state that is outside this call. We are all just fine. And we can use some polishing. So please, look into the experience of Zazen, the experience of your awareness 
in your life right here, right now, whatever level you looking at that. Look carefully, carefully, carefully. And that is where this opens up. And then we go out in the world and we engage. And then we bring our engaged life, and it doesn't mean necessarily political engagement. It means whatever particular way we are called to engage. We engage bringing our deepest, strongest, most heartfelt resources to that engagement. And then we see what happens. See how it develops. See how the universe unfolds it. So we think of Seishin as we're retreating. <clears throat> in a way, we're coming here, we're sitting in this nice environment, and you know, very good food, and you know, maybe it'd be better if we had a little more sleep. But we think of Seishin as retreat. But actually, when we are doing this particular work, it's not a retreat. It's a engagement with our life. And it's a stepping stone to further engagement with our life. I think I probably said this. I say it over and over again. Um, in part of that engagement, we have to decide what we're going to grow. You know, we are human beings. We were made to grow things. We're going to become pregnant without even knowing it. We are made to grow things, whether we're growing children or institutions or plants or dogs or, you know, we're growing our culinary skills. We have to, as an adult human beings, grow something. We have to grow to learn, to express, to engage. Have to. Otherwise, we stay frozen children. This evening, we'll start doing Sanzen individual meetings. I'll try to meet with everybody tonight. For those of you who are new, Sanzen is simply a matter you come in. There's a couple of bows you do. The first bow is to the, to the ultimate truth. Always worth a bow. Second bow is to the lineage because you know the, the teachers here simply are <clears throat> kind of a, an inadequate representation of all this long stream of teachers teachers and students and teachers and students and teachers and students. It's gone on for millennia. And so we bow to the lineage. It's the second bow. And then you just state your, your name and what your practice is. By practice, I mean, what are you doing there all these hours in the meditation cushion? What are you doing there? And I hope by this time you have a, a stable steady practice, a stable, steady focus that you keep returning to. And then if you have questions or insights or I have questions or insights, we have a little dialogue. Try to make it pithy. Try to make it to the point. I do. And then the next person comes in. You do one bow. Use the last bow as thanks. So bow to the ultimate truth, bow to the lineage, and a bow of thanks. And then you come back to the sons and one. It's an opportunity to, to get a little bit of feedback about your particular practice. 
and then I think we'll continue doing the groups a little bit with some people uh, after this tomorrow. So, have confidence. Have confidence. Have confidence. You have every reason to have confidence.